I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can register for free and open up our entire online archive for 24 hours. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Tom Crew. I'm an editor at the LRB and I also write for the paper, most recently about the Corbyn phenomenon and the Labour Party. I have here with me today Lorna Finlayson, who teaches philosophy at the University of Essex and has also written for the LRB about Corbyn and other aspects of British politics. Hello, Lorna. Hi. We're now two days away from the general election. All the polls show a tightening of the race between Labour and the Conservatives, though some polls show a much tighter race than others. It's been a very unusual campaign in many ways, not least because of the now two terrorist attacks that have taken place during the course of the campaign. I've written in the LRB before about my scepticism over how Corbyn will perform in the election. I'm not sure he can or will win, but Lorna, you've written about the need to back Corbyn in the past. Um, So what I thought we'd do to start was to go back uh, a year ago. We both wrote for the LRB around the same time about Corbyn during the second leadership campaign, uh, you in June, uh, me in August. When I look at what I wrote, I think it was technically would have been in July last year. It's something of a period piece, I think, because that leadership campaign now seems a long time ago. I spent some time in some Corbyn meetings and I felt very strongly that there was this sort of language of takeover that there was I suppose I was making a plea for compromise I tried to point I tried to point out the degree of common ground in the Labour Party and I sort of studiously avoided uh, sort of backing any candidate um, but I felt anxious at that point that the mood in the party was sort of ugly I suppose uh, though I could also see that the great optimism and excitement that Corbyn had unleashed you argued very strongly that we needed to keep Corbyn um, to use the title of your blog. So I thought we could, before we talk about the election, I thought we, we could maybe wind back to that time a year ago and sort of follow follow the story up until the election because it was a sort of difficult period for lots of people in the Labour Party with lots of warnings of existential crisis. So let's start by doing that. I mean, how do you, up until the election, how were you feeling about the way the Corbyn phenomenon had unfolded? Well, I think you're right that it feels like a long time ago. I think a lot of lot has happened in that space of time. Um, the time you're referring to about a year ago, that was when I joined the party for the first time. Before that, I'd really had almost no contact with party politics. I'd, my background had been in um, student activism. I'd been in demonstrations, student occupations. Um, but I'd always thought party politics had nothing to interest me, nothing to offer me. And 
the the time when that changed was when Corbyn by chance slipped onto the ballot paper the first time around and uh, and was then elected. And it was in the second leadership competition that I actually felt I have eventually had to join the Labour Party in order to vote for him. So I'm completely open and unapologetic about that. I'm exactly one of those people that many um, more long-standing Labour members hate, right? Because I'm a, a fine, I'm an infiltrator. I don't really care about that. Um, but your question was, how, how do I think things have changed since between then and now? I think up until the election, I mean, how did you... So we've had that another year, really, since Corbyn was elected for the second time. The polling's been very bad in that time. Corbyn's personal ratings have been very poor. Um, my most recent piece of the LRB, again, it almost looks like a period piece. It already looks dated because, of course, we've subsequently had this sort of Corbyn surge and a very effective general election campaign. But I think in some ways it will be easier to see what's changed and what's gone right in the election campaign if we can talk about where things were going wrong or the misfires or or maybe not that had taken place in the previous year. Well, I mean, there were times when it looked very bad, definitely. And I'm not a natural optimist, so I wasn't one of those people who always thought, oh, it's all going to be fine, he's going to win. Um, I don't think it's in the bag now, and I certainly didn't think it was in the bag then. Um, I thought it was possible, um, but that's very different from uh, thinking it's... Um, uh, somehow guaranteed or inevitable. Um, I think it's not difficult to understand why things were looking as bad uh, as they were for so long. Um, it would kind of be remarkable if they if there wasn't some effect uh, of the relentless media attacks. Um, that may sound conspiratorial and paranoid. Again, I, I don't really care. I think it's 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 obviously true. I mean, there have even been various kind of establishment academic studies which have charted the bias of the BBC, of publications including The Guardian, which see themselves as progressive or even left. So I think it would have been absolutely astonishing if, the, if Corbyn hadn't suffered uh, and the movement hadn't suffered as a result of that. And it did. And so the hope was that once there was some kind of uh, uh, focus, like a general election campaign where there could be uh, a chance for um, uh, more coverage, because for a while after they finished attacking him, what the media did was just ignore him. Right? And then everyone complained, well, why is he not doing anything? Um, so I think the hope was that once there was uh, some kind of focus, some kind of attention, like a general election uh, campaign, people would be exposed to uh, the actual policies and uh, the, the polls would change. And that is, in fact, what's happened, which is encouraging. I think that's true. Both times when I've met people in Momentum or gone to Corbyn events, that has always been the underlying assumption that really people always just needed to see more of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, well, or of the policies. Yeah. Um, I've been I've been canvassing the last few days in, in Ipswich and um, there are some people who say they're not sure about Corbyn. Um, they think he's not a leader. I personally think that has no content or no, no substance behind it, the idea that he's not a leader. It's just something that has been said so often that it's just kind of trickled into received wisdom. Um, but even those people who express reservations, for the most part, were saying they were still going to vote Labour. They love the policies, they love the manifesto, and they're desperate for change. I think in some ways, again, this is something that points up what's gone right in the campaign. I think for me, in the last year, the, the problem was, A, that the policies weren't there a lot of the time, that there's the manifesto is so striking because it, it has so much content um, and finally gives that sort of grounding for the project that I think was lacking before. And I think the manifesto has given the party something to graft a narrative around. What I felt like before was that the narrative was sort of free-floating and that the problem was that the Labour Party was struggling to articulate, or Corbyn was struggling to articulate a vision of where the country was and where the country should go that didn't rely on sort of established tropes 
my anxiety was that Corbyn was speaking the same language as he had spoken prior to being elected to the Labour Party leadership, which meant that it was the, it was a language that hadn't been cultivated to speak to a larger section of the population. You know, if you're a Labour leader, you need to broaden your base, you need to start appealing to people who might have voted Conservative in the past, uh, as well as Green or SNP uh, or Liberal Democrat. And I felt like his language was quite sort of confined to his sort of specialisms, I suppose, that he would speak of the unemployed, the disabled, these sort of marginalised groups which absolutely need that voice, but he wasn't sort of capable of making that bridge across to other aspects of the public. Um, and in some ways, I think the focus on, I mean, I said in my last piece, I think the language of austerity um, was limiting in that sense because I don't think it had a wider purchase. For, for Corbyn, it was enough to sort of say, austerity is bad, we will end austerity. And I think when so much of the population has accepted the case for austerity, um, at least we can assume... But is that true? I think the polling tends to think... Well, the polling certainly still indicates that the Tories have won the case on the economy, that they have they have an enormous lead on economic competence. Um, and I think there has been a willingness to go along with the Tory prescription for the economy. I think that's true. There's this um, totally unearned... Um reputation that the Tories have for being financially responsible in the way that Labour isn't and uh, that's been part of received wisdom and also a piece of, of, of nonsense uh, for, for, for a long time but I don't know if it's true that people are pro-austerity or they've bought that um, that's not the impression I have uh, and I think that's also demonstrated by the fact that even the Tory party has now retreated from a narrative about austerity and the need to tighten our belts. I mean, Theresa May is not taking the same sort of line as, as George Osborne was taking. Um, they've, they're now talking in terms of how much money they're ploughing into the NHS. Right? There's this claim about £8 billion. Of course, they're spending it on privatising it rather than actually funding it. And they also haven't said um, where it's going to come from, which is something that Corbyn could never get away with. Um, but I don't think it's really true that, 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 that a consensus has uh, arisen that's pro-austerity. I think it's kind of the reverse. But I think there are limitations to the austerity narrative, but they're not. I don't think they're, they're what you suggest. And my worry is that it's actually a little outdated precisely because there is now an anti-austerity, um, at least a superficial anti-austerity consensus. And actually we need to be talking less about austerity and more about sell-offs, more about privatisation, um, and even perhaps more about the impingements of, uh, of civil, 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 <laughs> civil liberties. I agree. I, no, I agree with that. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that almost in exactly those terms, that the case, the case against austerity, I, I think people, when I say that people are the public is behind austerity. I, I don't actually... It's not that they like austerity in its bare essence. They don't like closing libraries. People don't like parks being shut off. People don't like the sort of stripping away of the public sphere. And I'm very anxious about what's happening to local government, which, again, is an underreported aspect of the austerity programme, I think. It's not that people like that, but that they were prepared to sort of buy into this masochistic... You know, we're all in it together. We need to tighten our belts. You know, the household metaphors. You can't. You know, you spent too much on your credit card. You've got to pay for your debts. I think that does have a purchase. And my problem, up until the election, I think, was that Corbyn hadn't found a way to make that case, um, which didn't sort of um, re-employ um, sort of familiar language on the left that was incapable of making that case in a coherent 
way that sort of spoke to people. You know, why is austerity wrong? You know, here's a cause and effect. I, I think he was too reliant on just saying austerity is bad without without sort of making that broader case. But I agree with you very much that there has been a change in this election. And if we maybe switch to talking about the election again now more directly, I think it is striking that the economy has sort of shifted in the debate. Um, and I think that's actually a risk that Theresa May, it's maybe one of Theresa May's l- lesser, less reported ri- mistakes, is that in calling this election, she could do two things, really. She could either talk about Brexit a lot, which was obviously the, a key plank in the in the plan. But the problem then is that her vision of Brexit is is very woolly, it's vague, it relies on catchphrases anyway, partly because they don't want to give away their negotiating, negotiating hand, apparently. So, so there's not much content in the Brexit platform. And then there's this other strand in Theresa May's political appeal, which is this sort of Mayism, this sort of, you know, uh, Tory appeal to blue-collar workers, um, sort of sort of rehashed, watered-down millibandism, this sort of pitch to the working classes. And I think the risk that she took, which looked like a successful gamble, even a few weeks ago, was that she was wanting to advance into Labour heartlands and attract the Labour vote by making this pitch to the blue-collar workers. Uh, you know, And she started talking about the working classes, I think, before the Labour Party started talking about the working classes again. But the problem with her doing that, I think, is that it actually opened up more space for Corbyn. The Tories, the Tories very successfully boxed Labour in in 2015 into an election that was about the economy. It was about competence on the economy. It was about economic credibility. Well, you could say Labour boxed itself in well, as well, to some yeah, extent. I think that's true, too. Um, but I think by actually moving away from those terms... Theresa May has accidentally opened up the debate because it, when you're both making that pitch about social justice, I think Corbyn's obviously got the stronger pitch. Um, so she sort of put herself in a position where she's offering of this sort of weak and watery uh, version of social justice. I think that's an understatement. I mean, it's almost entirely contentless yeah, what she has yeah, to offer. Yeah. She just hoped initially that that by focusing purely on Brexit and kind of portraying herself as the Brexit queen, even though she was pro-Remain until the, after the referendum, she would just have it in the bag. And lately, the focus is, uh, has switched again and is on national security. And she's really um, mercilessly exploited the recent terrorist attacks to her own advantage. At least she's hoping that it's going to be to her own advantage. We'll see. But I think those she wants to focus on those two things, the, the issue of uh, security and defence uh, on the one hand, um, which she also links with, with immigration, which is another of her, her favourite topics, and Brexit. And I think social justice seems to, to come um, second. Yeah. Which um, is probably just as well for her. Yeah. Well, it feeds into Will Davis wrote a piece for the LRB about this sort of idea of the protective state, sort of Hobbesian... Uh, dimension to Theresa May's political program as this sort of quite authoritarian state which sort of picks picks winners or he, I think he's now refined the argument this idea that actually Mayism is about sort of making everyone losers uh, that you sort of you sort of level down almost that you sort of share you're going to share the pain of Brexit um, and you know for example David says that students part of the reason why she's so keen for students not to to be counted in the immigration numbers is this idea that you you know you shouldn't let people off 
Uh, you shouldn't. No one should get special favours anymore. In well, she's been keen on deporting students since her time in the Home Office. I think the the terrorist attacks. It's interesting. I think conventional wisdom. I mean, obviously, it's not particularly savoury topic, but conventional wisdom would say that uh, the attacks would benefit the Tories. Um, that sort of author- authoritarian appeal, or sort of the, the strong and stable message, is one that would work in a time of uh, national anxiety. Um, but what's been impressive, I think, is that a that there wasn't any obvious, you know, again, it's how how far we trust the polls, but there wasn't any obvious rebound in Theresa May's favour after the Manchester attacks, which might have been expected. Um, and actually, that Corbyn's had a very uh, reasoned and and quite attractive response. Yeah, I think what he said was uh, absolutely right. So his position on that um, has been to state the link with foreign policy which the government is desperate to uh, distract from. Um, And I think that's a message which, although of course it was predictable what the Tories would do, it was absolutely predictable that they would say, ha, Corbyn is making excuses for terrorists. Um, But I think that that the the line he w- he was taking was not only the correct line but it also has a certain amount of appeal because even those who are um quite sort of anti-immigration probably pretty racist um will often actually quite like the line well we shouldn't be meddling other people's affairs we should be looking after our own right as the phrase has it and i think what he was saying about um the consequences of foreign intervention and drawing that link with terrorism can speak to those people as well as to um the anti-racist uh, left there's this other point which is that it it has allowed him to make this case about police numbers and police cuts which again i think is a way that it, it, not that he's necessarily blaming Theresa May for anything that's happened, but it, but it's but there's an argument that's again it's something that's opened up space I think for his for his politics for his uh, for his arguments because I suppose this comes back to what I was saying earlier about how do you package the anti austerity argument? What's the best way of making that case um, that resonates with people? And I've often thought that there is something to say about how. The cuts are progressively undermining sort of institutions and services in Britain. And I've always felt there's got to be a tipping point where things start looking pretty crappy. Things start looking pretty shabby in Britain. Yeah, I think that happened some time ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I think it takes, I think it might take seven years for people to start seeing the difference. And I think actually what... I think they've seen the difference. I think it's been, it's been more than seven years in the making already. I mean, a lot of this started under Blair, really. And then it's been massively taken up and accelerated by successive Tory governments. But the privatisation of the NHS, the introduction of student fees, those are, you know, legacies of the Blair years. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I see that. But I think, but simultaneously, what the Blair government did do was pour a lot of money, not always sensibly, into sort of, sometimes, sometimes these sort of glamorous sort of vanity projects. But there was a lot of sort of civic architecture and investment that went on in those years. The reason things don't look worse than they have, I think, is because there was a, a quite a high level of investment for 10 years, um, which meant that there's, you know, we started from a reasonably good position, which is why things don't look shabbier than they are. But just to come back what I, to what I was saying is that I think the police cuts issue is, a, is an example of the way Corbyn can say, you can't just keep cutting things. You can't just keep cutting and thinking you can always get away with it. There are going to be consequences you are actually undermining our institutions. And for example, if you cut 20,000 police officers, you might leave yourself open to, to, to terror or to an increase in 
other sorts of crime. And I think that helps make that practical anti-austerity case, which is, you know, you will be living in a second-rate country. And there comes a point where actually investment, you have to start investing again because none of us are happy with an inferior service. None of us are happy living in a second-rate, run-down, shabby, crappy country. Um, And I think think that's a really useful way, a sort of Harold Wilson sort of way, uh, of of packaging that anti-austerity case as being about upgrading, about modernity, about investment, and an optimistic case for a sort of better better britain and i think i think that that issue about police numbers shows a sort of resonance a case like that can have well i think a lot of people don't f- really feel that the police are there to protect them right i mean i I'm, i've never been too keen on the police but i think if i was in corbyn's position i would be saying similar things because the sheer hypocrisy of of what may is saying is is absolutely staggering and it's only really because of the acquiescence of the media that she's even able to get away with it in the very, very short term, and hopefully she won't in the slightly longer term, by which I mean two days, get away with it. Um, but yeah, the, the the sheer hypocrisy of A, facilitating um, uh, jihadi fighters to go to Libya and... Uh, and uh, so, in order to in order to overthrow Gaddafi, and then not drawing the connection when the when the consequences um, uh, rebound in the form of terrorist attacks in the UK, um, it's amazing that that, that that she's not really being held to account for that. And that it's also amazing that she's not being held to account held, held to account before about cutting twenty thousand police, as if that's not somehow going to have an effect on the ability of the police to prevent attacks like this and there's even been an ex-chief constable in the the last 24 hours who's come out and said this and openly accused the government of lying and that's pretty extraordinary that gives me some kind of hope yeah yeah it's an it's an interesting oh and he says you know the as is unsurprising the police are traditional tory voters well not anymore apparently yeah Yeah. apparently they don't really like being uh, made redundant on mass it's interesting too but because in some ways this has been a very parochial is probably uh, the wrong word but it's been an insular election and it has been an unusual it has been a very domestic election um for something that was meant to be about brexit you know we were, this was initially billed as the brexit election so it's striking actually that the international dimension has turned out to be to revolve around this sort of terrorism question rather than this sort of the looming uh disaster that that is brexit i mean that's i think that's probably because the labor party isn't in much of a better position to talk about Brexit than the Tory party because it is a great unknown. I mean, it's, I think it makes sense for the Labour Party not to really be speaking about Brexit um, to make this about to their domestic priorities. I think it's where they're strongest. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, Theresa May wanted it to be about Brexit, but she doesn't get to decide what the election is about. She gets to, Her power is she gets to call an election. She doesn't get to decide that it's about Brexit because it happens to suit her that it's about Brexit. I mean, I... I don't know if there's any evidence or what would constitute evidence on this, but I get my feeling is that people had their say in the referendum um, and that it was about much, much more than leaving the EU. Many people didn't really know anything about the EU, particularly as an institution. It was about something else. And since then, a lot of people have actually kind of lost interest in Brexit. A lot of people who voted remain accept the result. A lot of people who vote leave have moved on uh, i don't think she was really on to much of a winner in trying to make it all about um the negotiations i think people's attention has 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 moved exactly when i said earlier the, the vapidity of the brexit message meant that she had to tack to others she had to start talking about di- different things and that's where she gave corbyn corbyn the advantage i think 
because he's the one who has the solid policies. He's the one that has this interesting manifesto. Well, she did a lot to give Corbyn an advantage. I mean, you couldn't have hoped for more, really, from her. Yeah. I mean, she's uh, she's been robotic, repetitive, weak, transparent. She's U-turned, I think, three or four times now on various policies. She won't show up to a debate on TV with him. I mean, she, rather than trying to produce like the most bland Tory manifesto possible, she unnecessarily draws attention to the most evil of her evil policies. Um, it really is a gift. And yet they're still in the lead. This is the Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> just, that doesn't really surprise me. No. With two terrorist attacks, the media being what it is... Um, I don't think that's particularly surprising, but the but the gap uh, and the narrowing of the gap in such a short space of time has been pretty striking, and I think that's an achievement. Whatever happens on the eighth, that's a good point to start thinking about Labour's chances in the election. Uh, we've sort of alluded to it as we've gone on. The polls have become incredibly close in some cases. I think there was a poll on Saturday that had Labour thirty nine. Tories on 40. There was one that had Labour ahead, an unadjusted poll, yeah. unadjusted for turnout. I mean, it all seems to depend on um, whether you basically think young people won't vote because they didn't last time and the time before, or whether you take people's word for it in terms of, you know, you ask them, how certain are you that you're going to vote? And then you take them at their word. So if they say they're certain, you assume they're going to vote. If you do the latter, then the gap is very, very tiny and could even see Labour going into the lead. If you do the former, then uh, it looks like the Tories will win comfortably because young people um, won't be making it to the polls. And I don't think anyone really knows. I mean, people try and pretend that this this is some kind of predictive science, but um, recent events don't really bear that out. I don't think anyone really has any idea which way that's going to go. Though it seems, it does seem plausible to me that the youth turnout will be much greater. And I, it seems odd. It seems hard to believe that Corbyn won't motivate more young voters than Ed Miliband did to get out and vote. So I, I can see, I can, I, I would, I would, I would put a bet on youth turnout being higher this time, and that a lot of the people who say they're going to vote will vote. Uh, whether that means they all will, I don't know. Um, now the question there is, where are these young people based? I think there's seventy. 76 seats where 18 to 24 year olds outnumber over 65s uh, labor already holds 57 of them so it's that it's that risk of the national polls tell one story but where are these votes concentrated and the risk is that young voters are concentrated in the wrong places in these sort of student heavy university seats and that actually labor might have a very respectable vote share but it, because of the vagaries of our electoral system um it might not pay off in the way the national polls suggest which would be obviously intensely disappointing well that's very possible i i I don't really get that deep into it because it doesn't have a practical bearing on anything that i'm going to do i can't do anything about that i can't redraw boundaries um and the fact that i'm actively campaigning for labor doesn't mean that i'm any more optimistic necessarily than somebody who isn't because even you know whether they whether they're going to win or going to lose i'm going to do the same thing which is be on that side because i think it's actually finally something worth standing up for so i think it's kind of a mistake in some ways partly because i think it's unknowable but also because it's in practical terms irrelevant to sink too far deep into the into the predictions and the polling in what in what terms is it practically irrelevant because if you convince me that the Tories are, in fact, say, 80% probability of winning. 
they have an 85% probability of winning. I'm not going to do anything differently from what I'm already doing, I don't think. I mean, at best, you might psychologically prepare yourself for disappointment, but I always do that anyway. <laughs> we all do. We all do. So, so you've been campaigning the last few days. So what's the mood been? You're in Ipswich, I think. I've been once in Colchester, and the rest of the time I've been in Ipswich, because that's my nearest town. And there's no point campaigning in the Suffolk countryside, because that's uh, that's Tory Tory through and through. Toryville. Um, yeah, that would be a waste of time. So uh, my nearest town is Ipswich, and that's a traditional Labour seat. Last two terms, it's been Conservative, and I think there's a very good chance that it might swing back the other way this time. I really hope so. So what's the mood on the doorsteps? Good? From what I've seen, very good, yeah. Um, I was surprised by the amount of enthusiasm there was, actually. It's it's quite a depressing place to walk around um, at the moment. Well, it kind of always has been a pretty depressing town. Um, but I think Apologies it's, it's to got much... Ipswich listeners. Well, I am an Ipswich uh, listener. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but yeah, I mean, I like Ipswich, but it's a depressed um, area. And I think people recognise that and uh, want to see change. And I was, I wasn't surprised by that, um, but I was slightly surprised by the degree of enthusiasm that I encountered. Quite a lot of people, really, actually coming up to us as we were going round and and accosting us on the street to tell us that young groups of young people saying we're all voting Labour, keep up the work. People taking posters and putting them up. So I really hope that that translates into into a, a Labour victory. I've got so I've got two questions. One, you know, people talk about corp, you know, the the sort of catchphrase on the Labour right in the last year has been Corbyn comes up on the doorstep. What I hear on the doorstep is voters don't like Corbyn. Did you pick up any of that? A couple of times people expressed reservations about Corbyn, yeah, but they were still going to vote Labour. And as long as they vote Labour, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable to have reservations about um, any human leader. Um, Advisable. Yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily think that their their particular reservations were well-founded. I, as I say, I think this idea of being not a leader is without substance. Um, and it's just something that people have uh, absorbed from a certain media narrative. But that doesn't mean that I think Corbyn is, is flawless. Um, if I'm always defending Corbyn, which admittedly, uh, like I think four out of the last five things I, I wrote have been in one way or another defending Corbyn, that's not because I think somehow that I'm some kind, you know, that I'm some kind of fangirl and that he's uh, he's uh, um, right about everything. It's just really that I think his deficiencies, whatever they are, are kind of irrelevant in this context. It's a very very stark choice, you know. I mean, I, this is the this is the first time I've really really been nervous about a general election. Because if the Tories win again, I'm fr- I'm afraid that that's the end of the NHS, for example. Mm. And that's, you know, that means a lot of people are going to die. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. And next to that, whether Corbyn was um, sat down on a train or something is, yeah. is just, I, I'm not interested. I suppose that brings me to the second question, which was the importance of the manifesto, whether I think when I wrote about the Labour Party, I guess, I guess it's three weeks ago or so. The manifesto wasn't out yet. Um, I think it was leaked a few days later. And I think I'd underestimated the extent to which, when I was critical of the Labour Party for lacking a narrative or lacking a, a, a language that could speak to voters in the in the way I mentioned earlier, I think what I underestimated was how much work a manifesto could do. Partly because 
again, conventional wisdom has been to write off manifestos as not really making a difference, as sort of being window dressing. And I think this has been a a rare case where a manifesto has been able to do a lot of work for the Labour Party. It's actually built up built up a lot of ground, um, and it's in itself, in its concreteness, in its uh, togetherness as a as a statement of what the party is and what the party's for and who the party's for. I think it's been a very effective document and even being leaked I think was probably in its favour because it generated more attention and it was sort of away from the sort of stage managed here's our manifesto announcement is there a sense going around the doorstep that the manifesto is coming up or that the policies are an important part of Labour's appeal now and that actually the appeal of the manifesto the appeal of the platform that's this sort of very universalist uh, manifesto has the potential to actually outweigh anxieties about Corbyn himself that there's this rare case in which the well not so it's not so rare historically but that the 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 platform is more popular than the the man the leader and that our our anxiety or this sort of repeated trope that we live in presidential times this was going to be a presidential election is another piece of wisdom that's been thrown out the window because actually Corbyn can be less popular than this manifesto and do well or that the manifesto can buoy him up as it were or make people look past him yeah i think i think that's true to some extent although i i don't share your impression so much that before the manifesto there wasn't a coherent narrative or there weren't policies i think it had more to do with uh media neglect and and bias than maybe you're quite acknowledging i mean it was it was found that the majority of articles about Corbyn didn't represent his policies or misrepresented his policies. Didn't mean he didn't have policies. No, no. And in fact, you know, his policies have been consistent pretty much for the last 30 years. So, yeah, I think that the leak of the manifesto was helpful in drawing attention to the manifesto and the manifesto was helpful in focusing people's attention on the policies. And I think you're probably right that it's the policies rather than the individual that are um, speaking to people the most, but that's how things should be. I mean, it's better than the politics of personality. And thankfully for for those of us on on, um, Labour's side... um, Theresa May is trying to play personality politics without a personality, and that doesn't work too well. No, that's true. (laughs) That's true. That's a good way of putting it. It's interesting, but also interesting because Corbyn, you know, there was a part of Corbyn's appeal or the virtue of Corbyn was seen again that he was, that he again was almost personality free in the sense that he wasn't, he didn't sort of have an accentuated personality. He was the sort of very laid back, very um, unslick, you know, sort of every man, but actually, uh, that's that's been elevated into it is a persona of its own now. You know, what could have been two two fairly colourless politicians up against each other has actually been nothing of the sort. That actually, he his virtues have been on show. I think. I think so. Yeah. But I think there was a moment where that was more the case. I think earlier on when there was this so-called Corbyn mania. Mm-hmm. I don't really know exactly how to date that. Um, but a couple of years ago, around the time of the first, maybe even the second, yeah, one year ago, second leadership election, yeah, around that time, um, I remember thinking if there was a general election tomorrow, I think he would win because there was a real, there was something really kind of in the air. Between then and now, I think the media have had more time uh, and the Labour Party, the PLP themselves have had more time to chip away at that. And the sheen has worn off, the kind of initial... um, 
enthusiasm about this guy who's different and shabby and doesn't quite, you know, doesn't quite do things the way that politicians are supposed to do things has been replaced with a kind of fatigue and um, uh, suspicion of those aspects, at least to some extent. Within his support base or sort of? Um, amongst well, more, the public more generally, I think. But as you say, that that's why the manifesto is important, because I think people's attention is on that now, and that is translating into support. Mm-hmm. And it's better, really, that people, it, that if some, someone like Corbyn is going to be elected, it's better that it's done on the basis of that than on a kind of temporary infatuation anyway. Yeah. So even though the, the kind of the more intense phase of that has worn off, um, it doesn't mean that it's, that it's all over. We're sort of wrestling with intangibles here, because it's still possible that the polls could be badly out. I mean, there's been some polls still this week giving the Tories a 10-point lead. So it's entirely possible that Labour does have a really bad night, really bad defeat, and in which case, I, yeah, I don't for a moment doubt that the knives will be out. And then that is an interesting question because I don't know, I don't know what happens to the Labour Party then. Because I have been sceptical over the last two years, but I, it's not that I don't believe in the project of a left-wing Labour Party a more left-wing Labour Party. I spent all of Ed Miliband's leadership just pissed off all the time thinking, just move, you don't need to be this cautious. And I don't think he did need to be this cautious. So it's not that I don't believe that a left-wing Labour Party can win. I just think we really need to go back to basics and work out how, how to make it win. And that involves a lot of hard work. And I think when I have been critical of Corbyn in the past, it's because I think there's been too much complacency about how hard that job is and that you can't just repeat your stock phrases. To go back to this point about what happens if they lose, that to me is, is worrying because I do believe I do believe in this version of the Labour Party and I, I don't know where Yvette Cooper would take the party. I don't, I don't know what that strategy would look like anymore. I'm not sure she does. Uh, I try not to think about that. There's this idea that he would stay on. I don't... I don't for a minute think he will resign if he loses. Um, it wouldn't make sense. It just doesn't fit with anything they've been trying to achieve to throw it up, uh, particularly if it were to give the PLP the deciding voice. So I think there will be, if he loses if he loses badly, I still think there will be a fight uh, to find an unamenable successor. Um, but the problem the Labour Party faces both on the on its left and right is the lack of obvious candidates. Well, it will just take us back to, you know, for, for me, where, where I was before. I mean, mm. my position before all this happened was that there wasn't going to be any, any way that change was going to happen from within the party system, from within the Labour Party. Um, it may be that I'm wrong about that. And if I'm wrong about that, then I'll be very happy. Yeah. If I'm not wrong about it, we're just back to square one again. And there is politics doesn't begin and end with with party politics. I never believed that. Yeah, there's an awful lot of politics that can be done outside of that system. And of course, then people tell you that it's pointless and you can only change things from within the Labour Party, and that you should, you know, change it from within, move it from the, to the left from within. And then, of course, when that happens, they don't like it and they say they want you out. Yeah. And that's sort of Richard Seymour's another LRB contributor. That's his. His argument uh, in his book about Corbyn is that you know this is a moment, and I don't know. I think he's feeling much more optimistic now. But that you know, let's give Corbyn a try, but let's also recognise how difficult this is going to be, and that the Labour Party, with its own internal, internal culture uh, and its sort of obsession with its own history, and and its sort of the way it's 
it has been sort of geared towards a sort of an electoral strategy which involves accepting aspects of the British state which sort of pure leftists would you know, disagree with or wish weren't there. That you know you should always recognise the limitations of a project like that to to build from within the Labour Party because in some ways it's an inhospitable culture. I mean, but I think you're right. There's there's a hostility from the right and a hostility from the left. The right wing variant of it is expressed as the view that um, basically the public are right wing and that it's therefore in order to appeal to the public, in order to be electable, you have to basically be right wing. Of course, they don't call it right wing, moderate, if you like. Um, uh, And I don't think that's true. And I think that that's been borne out by recent developments because the more people are exposed to the actual policies, whether or not they they identify themselves as as right wing or left wing, um, they turn out to like policies which are regarded as left wing. So another way of saying that is that the public is left wing. People are left wing. Okay, fine. So I think the the right wing hostility is uh, disingenuous usually. And even if it's not disingenuous, it's it's incorrect. And then the left wing hostility, as you say, is more about is is there really something like parliamentary socialism that is is possible? Or is it inherently a practical contradiction? And there's this other interesting thing that's happened in this election. Again, another piece of conventional wisdom that's sort of been upturned is this idea that we were entering into this, for a long time we've been entering into a multi-party parliamentary system, that the sort of old two-party dominance uh, was breaking down, which again, it was behind a, a lot of the thinking about the Labour Party's position in the world, uh, you know, this talk of a progressive alliance, is all predicated on this idea that two-party politics is dead, um, that the Labour Party needs to, you know, grow up and accept that it can't win on its own anymore, which still might be true. I still think the way the electoral system is set up, uh, I think the Fabian Society, they produced a report that said that Labour needed an 11% lead, really, uh, in the polls to get a majority of one. Uh, So I still think there's a case to be made that, uh, you know, the Labour needs to work with others or help try and... Because I agree that the the public isn't right-wing. And, you know, the plurality, the plurality of left-wing parties or left-of-centre parties uh, in this country means that there is still a majority for progressive politics, and it's how you organise that. But putting all that aside, what this election has showed, again, that actually two-party politics isn't dead, and that the Labour Party does have a viability that we didn't think it had even six weeks ago, that it's actually swallowing up those smaller parties, and that the Tories... Because the Tories' vote share hasn't really declined significantly. What's happening is that Labour's vote share is increasing and that they're drawing in non-voters, Lib Dem voters, Green voters, which well, I suppose t- makes the, the case... The Tories' share has declined and Theresa May's personal oh, ratings yeah, have quite yeah. s- significantly... They've gone into negative. Yeah, but they're still sort of... You know, in the 2015 election, we had the two parties fighting over sort of early 30s, mid-30s ratings. Whereas what we're now seeing is... Labour and the Tories clustering around 40%, 40-45%. So between them, they're taking, you know, nearly 80% of the vote, which is is, is fascinating, but also says something, I think, about the viability of the Labour Party as a vehicle for progressive politics still, um, which didn't seem obvious not that long ago. I think it has something to do with the demise of the Lib Dems. Yeah, yeah. Which is well-deserved. Well-deserved. I've been amazed at how generous people have been to the Lib Dems. Um, 
Right, I think we've covered a lot of ground. One thing I thought we could just final point would be to talk we've talked about what we think might happen if Labour loses but you know let's be optimistic uh, and let's imagine that Labour if not win uh, there's a hung parliament and they can govern with SNP votes what do we think a Corbyn government would look like and what would be the dangers it faced I mean what would be the constraints on it obviously the media would be one I expect certainly the media would be one I really don't know. I don't want to pretend that I know. Uh, I have been a bit torn on this question of to what extent is Corbyn actually a threat to the establishment? And uh, as you say, his actual policies aren't aren't particularly um, radical. They're quite commonsensical. It's but it's it's reigning reality that is that is radically out of kilter with common sense. So it's uh, that's the situation we're in. So is he a, is he really a threat to the establishment and if so to what extent and I think that the right wing um expresses a kind of confusion or even self-contradiction about this they half the time say great let's have Corbyn lead the Labour party because then they'll be consigned to oblivion for the for a generation um but then it it very quickly generally becomes apparent that that is a bluff and a tactic to try and get rid of him, which suggests that they are in fact threatened by him. Now, why would they be threatened by him if they didn't A, think he was possibly electable, and B, that somehow his being elected would be some kind of a threat? Right. So, of course, it would be a threat to uh, the Tories if he were to be elected, because that would mean they weren't. Um, but also, I'm thinking of the interests of big business. Um, and... So I'm getting kind of mixed messages um, on that. And I don't really know exactly what to say about that. I don't know what you think. I completely agree that there's a sort of schizophrenic uh, response to Corbyn generally. And I I don't for a minute really think he's a threat to the establishment. I think, it, you know, in many ways he would probably end up disappointing people on on those grounds, you know, in terms of the radical restructuring of British society or the, or the uh, overthrow of institutions in the same way that Attlee disappointed lots of people um, for not doing those sort of big symbolic gestures like abolishing private education or something along those lines. But it seems to me, so I don't, you know, I think that's pretty much a nonsense. Um, I think he could be, in fact, a sort of Attlee figure because, again, a sort of unassuming, the unassuming man, you know, who was unpopular within his own party and not seen as an electoral asset and, yeah, has a programme that speaks to people. I mean, that's a... That's a sort of commonality, um, but it seems to me that if if Corbyn were to be in power, what what would be what we should be worried about is Brexit, which hasn't necessarily held him back uh, in the campaign, but actually would I think would come back to bite him. I think for two reasons: first, that already certainly this government, but probably just the public in general, are just hugely underestimating the the demands on the state that Brexit will place. I mean, it's going to take up an enormous amount of civil service time civil service that again to go back to our idea of britain being run down has been massively cut in the last seven years so it's an understaffed civil service that suddenly has this enormous technical challenge you know there's something like 750 trade deals we'd have to renegotiate we're already gonna have to spend a fortune bringing in all these trade experts and consultants and so forth the usual rigmarole um so i think that's going to take up an enormous amount of civil service time but also just ministerial time. I think it's so all-embracing as a as a 
policy, this departure from the EU, that that's going to take up a lot of energy at the same time as a Corbyn government would be trying to enact a radical transformative agenda. So I think there's just a practical difficulty. But my anxiety is also that Brexit would um, create an economic downturn or the economy takes a hit um, at the same time as Corbyn's trying to enact a policy agenda that involves you know, significant tax increases uh, only on 5% of the population, but significant all the same, and they're sort of predicated on um, various things being true, which might, <coughs> sorry, which might not be entirely true. Uh, so my anxiety would be that the economy takes a downturn, big business gets scared, the media pick it up, and the Tories take back the mantle of the economy. Because as we said before, I think that's what the Tories have sort of given up in this election, this idea that they're, um, you know, they're the people who can run, a, run the economy and Labour's, you know, magic money tree, blah, 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 which I think we've only seen a small amount of really in this election, but I think that would get taken up big time. Um, and it would all be used as a stick to beat them, beat them with. And if the economy kept going downhill at the same time as this agenda was happening, um, it would be easy for the Tories to link the two things up, link up the tax increases, link up the big public spending with a with an economy on the down and, and make that make that old connection start saying you can't trust this is a crazy government you can't trust with public money. And I think, again, really, as, as the Tories did after 1945, actually, um, is to, to sort of take take make that case that actually this is all, you know, uh, sort of crazy ideological spending and it's going to bankrupt us and we need to, you know, we need sound principles again. So that's what I would be worried about, that Brexit could do those two things, that it could... Uh, have a practical impact, impact, but also have an ideological impact in terms of rallying the Tories and and recreating that uh, that that block, big business again, sort of working hand in hand with the Tories in a way that it can't quite at the moment because they don't quite go along with Theresa May's single market strategy. Does that make any sense? Oh yeah, that's <laughs> that's perfectly possible. I mean, obviously, uh, whatever goes wrong and things will go wrong after the election will be uh, blamed mostly on those who are in power. So th there would be some consolation in Labour coming close to winning but not winning in that they won't then be held as responsible for the fallout of Brexit, whatever that turns out to be. And it might pave the way uh, for something else in a, in, a, in a few years. That's possible. Mm. But... I mean, but I think we also have to not think about this as if somehow we we get to the election and then we sit and watch it unfold, watch the consequences unfold passively. I don't think there is a fact about of the matter as to what's going to happen. It's not, I mean, even if there's a fact of the matter about what the climate or the weather is going to be like, um, it it doesn't mean that it's not uh, sensitive to human intervention and human agency. So... Really, it depends on what we do, what happens after the election. Mm -hmm. If Labour won, and th yes, there would be attempts to blame any negative consequences of, uh, of Brexit on uh, their weakness or fiscal irresponsibility or whatever um, uh, heading you want to put it under. Well, yeah, that would be something people would have to resist. But it doesn't mean that it can't, it has to just be accepted, right? There are mm -hmm. ways of fighting back against that sort of thing. But I think that's absolutely right, that we it won't be the end and that's what makes this a fascinating election not only because the result seems uncertain but because you can see i don't know the tectonic plate shifting i think there is britain is still going through its febrile political moment and i think what seemed settled 
a month ago it no longer seems so you know this idea that it was going to be you know if we believe the polls you know it's not going to be the new tory state it's not going to be the tory hegemony it's not going to be this new maze britain it's not it's not going to be what she hoped exactly for sure which she means was overconfident from the beginning i mean people don't like that this uh, attitude of well that it's a foregone conclusion it's all settled this is how you're going to vote i mean one of the nicer things about humans is that they're quite perverse they don't really like being told what they're going to do mm. so i think that was a dangerous bit of complacency on her part and uh yeah even if it's short of a, a victory for Labour, it does look like this is going to blow up in her face yeah. one way or another. And that in itself is some cause for uh, celebration. <laughs> Indeed. And it, well, on that cheery note, thank you, Lorna, for being here to talk about Labour and the election. And thank you for listening. And uh, we'll hope to be back with some more interesting material again. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can register for free and open up our entire online archive for 24 hours. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open.